0: What's up, gamers? My name's Mel, and welcome to the first full-length episode of the Offside Podcast. The podcast where it doesn't matter if you're offside or onside, just as long as you're inside the lines. Now, on to the episode I've promised, the first episode of FIFA. (sighs) Just a quick note before we get started that this podcast is likely at some point to contain some swears. But... Like I said in the trailer, I'm going to be beeping the audio. See if you can identify the football-themed word or sounds which I use for censorship. You can learn the answer at the halfway point of the next podcast. Last thing. Though this pod is going to aim to be relatively clean, I'm also going to be making some mention of some white, white white-collar crime and some pretty sketchy business. So listen to your parents and skip ahead on this one if they say so, kids. Okay, on with the show. Let's go offside. Now, if you're a North American sports fan like me, then it's possible your only relationship to soccer, which, by the way, I'll be calling football for most of this episode, was likely playing on some kind of house league team when you were 12. Or, if you were a talented footballer, like my little brother, maybe even a rep team. Shout out to my little brother. (laughs) Screaming my face off at your games is still one of my best childhood memories. Either way, if you're the average North American, it's likely that these early memories might be the only soccer ones that you have. That, and perhaps the World Cup. That massive international tournament that comes around, similarly to the Olympics, every four years. For me, watching the tournament and the massively big deal that it was to the rest of the world, was pretty epic, particularly in Europe and the parts of South America, where football was described by the commentators as a religion. And that wasn't too hard to see when cameras panned to fans with their faces painted, chants for individualized players and countries, and more scarves and beer caps than the Frosty the Snowman that your dad helped you build on Christmas Day. Basically, what I'm saying is that in the rest of the world, football's a big deal. That being said, though, despite what they might want you to think, FIFA didn't really invent the concept of football. In fact, far from it. So before we dive into the deep, complicated world of one of the most corrupt sports organizations in history, let's go back to the land before FIFA, when the game was truly just the beautiful game. <laughs> Not unlike how some Canadians are acutely proud to inform people that their nation invented the game of hockey, or an American claiming baseball is their own, so too does the small nation of England proudly cling to the claim of having invented the game of football. Although plenty of other European nations would play the games, often with slight rule differences from one country to another, or even from one county to another. In researching this podcast, no organization displays Ingram's love for football than the organization that predated FIFA by some 40 years. The FA, or Football Association. First off, I'd like to point out, just because I find it amusing that this English football association seriously personifies what I consider to be a confident England. Think about it. It's called THE, emphasis on THE, football association as if the mere existence of any other football association just wouldn't make any sense. This disregard for the notion that any other nation could possibly grow to adapt, change, or even improve on their beautiful gentleman's game would later come back to haunt them in the story of England and FIFA. But that's for later. Now back to the FA itself. The FA was founded, according to the fine folks at thefa.com, under the direction of a man named Ebenezer Morley, a solicitor, or old-timey English for a lawyer, in 1863. Just to put that in the context of time, the first functional car was invented in 1885, approximately 20 years (laughs) post-FA. The Queen of England at the time was Queen Alexandra. 89 years before Queen Elizabeth II. And 65 years before the invention of sliced bread in 1928. I guess what I'm saying is the FA is old. Old as Mbappe, in fact. Anyway, our boy Ebenezer Morley formed a team made up of schoolboys, which he called the Barnes FC, or Barnes Football Club, and hosted the first official meeting of the FA in the most British place possible, the Freemasons Tavern. It's said that the original association was made up of 11 teams, including Ebenezer's original Barnes Club, and one, Civil Service FC, which still exists today in the Southern Amateur League's senior division. The rules, which the FA for some reason referred to as laws, were finalized and published into a booklet which would cost a shilling and a sixpence. Anyone out there looking for a copy, that's approximately £3.45 in today's coinage. Interestingly, what we might call today a slide tackle, which the FA in 1863 referred to as hacking, was not allowed in the original version of football coveted by the FA. With that being said, even the FA's own telling admits that those very specific rules were used sparingly, frequently ignored, and though some changes and advertising of the organization of mashes were published in sports papers at the time, they were often thrown out the window. Something which would eventually lead to a much more widespread influence for the FA was that creation of the FA challenge cup. If we move ahead a couple years in the way ahead machine, so we're gonna go 1875. Uh, The FA begins to grow exponentially and moves from being a largely fragmented regional organization to an organization that contained its own separate but connected clubs throughout the nation spurred on by the success of the FA Cup they watched these regional clubs which were encouraged by the overarching FA to organize cups and matches of their own row and flourish surprisingly given the time the idealism of the original FA teams in the northern part of England quickly latched on to the idea that if a club could successfully garner funds for its matches, then there was nothing wrong with paying players for their services. The popularity of this move would eventually force teams in the South to do the same and have the Football Association legalize professionalism in 1885. Again, I'd like to emphasize how wild this move is by pointing out that women didn't get the right to vote in Britain until the Equal Franchise Act of 1928. I'm going to say that again for the kids in the back. England had a professional football league before women of age could vote. But before you give the FA either all of your props for paying its workers, or bust out your women's suffrage picket signs, I think it's about time I tell you what this has to do with FIFA. But before we do that, I think I hear the whistle. Welcome to the first official intermission of the Offside podcast. Before we get going, let me explain what this is going to be about. This is the segment where I've decided to add some of the random but also cool facts that I found while researching this episode. It also might be the place where I dedicate the episode to some of the important side characters, if Earth- some folks in my real life who helped make this episode happen. If that doesn't seem like your cup of tea, then you can skip here to 19 minutes, 40 seconds and jump to the rest of the story. Go on. I won't sweat it. If you're still here, though, good on you, mate. Time for some of the randomness that is intermission. So our friend FIFA started as a pretty idyllic organization with the idea to centralize what the founder referred to as, quote, the gentleman's game, and turn it into a force for good. I'm sure we could argue for days if they've actually been successful at being a, quote, force for good. In the meantime, but in my mind, possibly the coolest soccer ball on the planet built to support the greater good was one I learned about in school. Under the direction of entrepreneur Jessica Matthews and her company Uncharted Play, they created a soccer ball in 2013, quote, using pendulum-like technology, which captures and stores the kinetic energy of the ball being kicked and stores it to be used later. It's later used to turn the ball into a functioning off-grid light, which was intended to help kids in impoverished areas have access to light so that they could continue doing schoolwork after dark. The ball is called the Socket and was developed by Uncharted Play. It provides three hours of school light on a full charge. They didn't pay me to say that. I just think it's a cool ball. With that, I'd like to insert today's dedication. Today's episode is definitely dedicated to the aforementioned Ebenezer Morley, founder and rule maker or lawmaker of the original football rule book. Today's second Dedication goes to the Mbappe, woman of color, breaking the Silicon Valley stereotype with her socket ball and self-described desire to, quote, find the balance between Bill Nye and Beyonce, Jessica Matthews. If you want to learn more about the socket ball, the information that I found for this particular intermission can be found at Business Insider. Speaking of mother. First, let's talk about goalies. Goalies, as we call them in North America, or keepers, as my friends in the EU will say. Well, keepers are weird. And I say that with the utmost respect. As someone who has stated, more than once that if i was ever reincarnated i would like to come back as a top level football keeper this is in itself a little weird considering that i'm not really a soccer fan but it's facts you can check it with my mom anyway weird sidebar and stereotyping of people who want to be keepers aside Turns out that the rules that govern some keepers in some cases can also be pretty strange, so let's take a look at some of those. Weird rule number one. Goalkeepers are only allowed to hold the ball for six seconds. Apparently, some hardcore gamers who are familiar with the FIFA series will know and loathe this rule with the ferocity of the those unrelenting robo-refs in EA Sports' FIFA video games. The 6 second rule is rarely called in actual matches, but there have been some instances where refs will pull out that whistle to make it known that the 6 second rule is one that does in fact exist. Weird rule number 2. Once the keeper has released or dropped the ball she's not allowed to pick it back up again until another player touches it with trying to make that classic long-range goal kick your team your team was counting on too bad you better hope that pesky opposing striker isn't too nearby to capitalize weird rule number three and this is a fifa specific rule fifa's rules specifically specify that keepers have to wear different colors than the rest of their club. This particular rule has been the subject of much discussion of a few of my friends' group, groups as I work on this pod. I know, isn't my life exciting? Feastful's official standing on this rule states that the rule exists to pretend own goals. This seems a little strange to me considering the fact that, to be honest, soccer seems to be the sport where I see the most own goals. I also kind of think that it strikes me as a grand insult to the intelligence of keepers of all stripes everywhere that they somehow couldn't tell the difference between their own players. But other football fans with far greater knowledge in this field than me, or on the pitch rather, (laughs) see what I did there, have reminded me that unlike hockey, football teams don't always have home and away jerseys. And so perhaps the rule exists because the world doesn't have enough colors to make a keeper stick out the second explanation that was suggested also seems pretty plausible to me and that is that football as it is now and as it has in fact always been is particularly obsessed with the idea of tradition and keeping soccer pure though i can't really find much evidence to support either argument i'm partial to the tradition one who knows, maybe some rebel of a goalie just thought having a tie-dye jersey would be slick. Like I said, goalies are a unique breed. So I've been harshing on goalies a little bit now. Um, so this last fact isn't so much a fact as it is a request. Next time you see one, give your goalie slash keeper a hug. It really is true that goalies get the unfair rep of being weird. but Maybe the prospect of having a ball or puck hurled at your face seems like a terrible idea. But to some of us, having the opportunity to have a football in your hands was a solid way to spend a Saturday. So, throw it in, roll it in, send it two-thirds of the way down the field, or make your defender kick it for you. Just keep it in on the right side of the line that and hug your goalie special thanks to emily abib and her Playfinder blog for taking me down that weird keeper rules rabbit hole i'm gonna throw her link in the show notes in case you want to see some videos of keepers breaking some of these time-honored rules lastly on a personal note i'd like to thank you taz's mom Taz's mom, the woman who not only unknowingly inspired this episode, gave birth to and raised my favorite podcast buddy, and also apparently literally had a soccer ball as a present and important part of her wedding. You're a pretty excellent lady, Taz's mom. Cheers to you. Speaking of soccer balls, have you ever wondered how they get that distinctive black and white color? Or why they get that distinctive black and white color? Me too. According to the fine folks at YourSoccerHome.com, the questionably moral corrupt folks at FIFA came up with the idea of the black and white soccer ball used first in 1970 at their World Cup so that the TV audiences who were viewing the game at the time on a black and white television could more easily see the ball. That, my friends, is what we in the podcast world Call an expertly placed segue. I don't know about you, but I hear a whistle, and we all know what that means. Time for the second half. Let's go. Welcome to the second half, ladies, gents, and everyone in the middle. Now, last we left off, it was 1885, and then the number of teams was growing in the FA. So, was discontent among some. Football fans and players alike, that having clubs in the F.A. be professionalized was going to result in, quote, corruption of the game. For those of you who don't know how this FIFA story ends, that's a bit of foreshadowing. Anyway, in 1884, the F.A. earned a degree of competition, probably partially because of the growing popularity of the game, which, by the way, still has little in the way of centralized rules and partly because of contention regarding amateur players versus professional players. Thus, the British Football Association was formed. Not to be confused with THE Football Association, which literally exists in the exact same country. I'm going to spare you the seemingly overdramatic and slow snail mail letter writing which ensued between clubs and league officials at the time. Oh! And skip way ahead to the part that we all came here for. All you really need to remember is that in around about the turn of the century, football in Britain was engaging in, quote, a bit of a gentlemanly scuffle. or as we here in America might like, North America might like to call it, a (laughs) So how, you might ask, does Britain fix its fickle football problem? Say that three times fast. Well, surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, English fixes its football problem the same way it seems to have, quote, fixed this problem. In a a lot of other things in the age of colonialization, it let other countries solve its problem. Specifically, gentlemen from Belgium, Denmark, France, the Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. By this time, the game of football had also spread to other nations. But similar to the problem faced by the FA, the game was played by different clubs by different rules depending on where you were. Much like the International Olympic Committee, baby FIFA set out... With the very idealistic and broad goal of centralizing the rules of, quote, association football, not to be confused with American football or rugby, and to foster friendly relations among member nations. Basically, they wanted to harden Mr. Ebenezer Morley's original rule book and be the centralized body that would organize international friendlies and tournaments between clubs and make sure that all of the other members played nicely together. And how did the fine British gentleman respond to a bunch of men from other countries proposing this exclusive organization of FIFA? Which, part of my French, stands for Federation Internationale de Football Association. Well, the English responded exactly how you might expect a stereotypical aristocratic British villain to respond. <laughs> They refused to join after receiving an invitation, letter, and personal plea from the small, ambitious organization. If one is to believe FIFA's self-funded, definitely biased, and objectively terrible fictionalized documentary United Passions, the uppers at the FA rejected FIFA's invitation to join this new organization claiming that no legitimate football organization could exist without having England at its top, and so rejected their invitation to join in 1904, simply because they couldn't be in charge. Cue the stereotypical sports montage, where FIFA raises for mediocrity and saves international football without the Goliath that is the nation of England. <laughs> Just kidding. Although there are a lot of people who will say, including FIFA itself, that the organization did a lot to spread and create a more cohesive game that was then spread further to other nations around the world. Unfortunately, though, the podcast you're listening to is aiming to tell you the true and less glamorous side of the game and the organization that so many have grown to love. That being said, like I said previously, it wasn't all bad. The organization started out pretty innocently to unite the nations who all played the game of football under one standard of rules, organized friendly matches, and who knows, maybe even a larger tournament where they could crown a world champion. And not the NFL American football version of a world champion where the, quote, world champion comes from a pool of exclusively American teams. In case you didn't detect that, that was definitely Me throwing shade at the NFL. We have a weirdly specific history about when FIFA became a thing. Uh, Watch this. FIFA was formed on May 21st, 1904. And according to a lot of the records that I looked at, it was not only formed in Paris, but it was formed on a very specific road, which I'm not going to attempt to speak for you in French, because I don't really think anybody wants to hear that. Before I move on to the juicy stuff about FIFA's long history of corruption, the brazen the brazen cooks, crooks who fret it, and the unexpected heroes who attempted to stop them, I thought it was important that I gave you at least a basic idea of how this rather confusing organization is run. Before I do that, though, I want you to know that one of the books that I used as the main form of research for this podcast is a book called red card by ken bensinger and he states that one of the one of the main characters in the book and one of the main characters in the scandal itself is a man by the name of special agent berryman he's a an fbi guy and his him and his fbi colleagues some of whom worked on Organized crime and mob cases said that even they found it particularly difficult to understand exactly how the hierarchy of FIFA actually worked. So, I just want to take this time to say that if, for whatever reason, you find what I'm about to explain to you a little bit confusing, that's totally okay. I feel like if the FBI says it's confusing, then it's definitely also allowed to be confusing to one of us. But I'm going to do my best. As FIFA stands now, it's the leading branch which runs under it six member organizations that then represent the individualized nations which enjoy membership within them. Each individual member member nation inside of these larger branches uh, is given one vote in FIFA regardless of its size and success in the World Cup when FIFA is electing its all-important president. These votes, along with the all-important vote for which nation will host FIFA's all-important quadrennial World Cup, are not only of great importance, but also are worth a great deal of money, both in terms of profit and sometimes the less-than-above-bar bribes which allow the votes to be bought. It's the buying of votes, corruption, and bribes which begins our story. Before we're able to jump into the folks who will be the main characters of this podcast, it's important to note that one of the presidential runs inside FIFA, which is often seen as marking the beginning of corruption within FIFA, occurred in the year 1974. In 1974, a well-known Brazilian Olympic swimmer, Jao Haviland, won the vote for FIFA presidency over Englishman Sir Stanley Rose, I think is how you say his name, a former football referee who was particularly controversial for his stance that apartheid South Africa was the correct policy, and so too was FIFA's support of it in backing of its law, that no mixed race team was allowed to be fielded or was allowed to play within the confines of South Africa during apartheid. That particular stance became important and is often noted as being one of the reasons that Havalange was chosen over for Stanley simply because Havilland promised that he would ban apartheid South Africa from FIFA. So, I find that particularly interesting. Not just because obviously it was important, but also because uh, FIFA initially and also even currently, if you pay attention, frequently will say that FIFA itself is is most invested in soccer and. Uh, doesn't dabble in politics um this seems to be a recurring theme not just for fifa but also for lots of other large sporting organizations like uh, the olympic committee and the paralympic committee and i'm sure others hopefully that doesn't get me in too much trouble to say that out loud but it's true Um, so anyways we're in 1974 and so we have uh being, being voted in as FIFA president. Uh, now I'm, I am going to say here that there's obviously no way for me to absolutely and truly verify what I'm about to tell you. But um, one of, again, another, one of the sources that I used for this podcast was a Netflix special that's on right now called FIFA uncovered. And one of the Brazilian journalists who they talked to, who was in the room when the, all this voting was going down, Uh, says that he witnessed that money was definitely and 100% passed in suitcases, like very James Bond style, (laughs) and that he believes that this passing of suitcases was in fact passing of money, uh, which was to be used to buy people's votes for either Mr. Haviland or Mr. uh, Stanley. So that's, often noted as sort of the beginning but unfortunately it's not the end of it uh not by a long shot okay so again we sort of dive into a little bit about some of the corruption that would continue under joe Havelange. uh one of the things that he one of the first things that he did was that he secured a relationship with adidas which um just in case you were wondering is a german company that's super relevant, but it's a German company, uh, and it made a deal with FIFA that it would provide kit, so uniforms, and soccer balls, and in some cases cleats for the FIFA World Cup, making it one of FIFA's uh, first big sponsorship deals. But one of the things that makes this particular deal a little bit sketchy is the long uh, that, along with providing kit for all of these different programs, because it wasn't just FIFA they were providing, or not, it wasn't just the World Cup they were providing them for, they were also providing them for these programs that Haviland had also promised as part of his presidency, which were Often programs that were meant to run in lower income countries uh, to promote football, sort of on a grassroots level. So Adidas agrees that they're going to provide kit and stuff like that and balls. But one of the big sort of things that comes from this also is that in order to secure this sponsorship, they also offer a pretty big deal under the table. Pretty big, sizable amount of money under the table to have lunch. Uh, and they do that supposedly to secure their sponsorship rights so by paying havalanche's money they're saying hey um, we're gonna provide all the kit and all this stuff but we've paid you this money so you better not pass on this contract to anybody else or give us any competition Um, along with that adidas is something that's also like i don't know if you would see this as 100 percent corrupt or or just like a pretty fantastic uh business decision But one of the other things that Adidas managed to do under this guy, uh, who was their president at the time, Adolf Dosser, um, was they, Adidas essentially created a side company uh, called ILS, uh, or ISL, sorry, International Sports and Leisure, which was a, supposed to be a sports media company whose literal sole function was to buy up all of the rights to FIFA in terms of like memorabilia and then also uh, television rights, which maybe initially wouldn't have been a huge amount of money, but eventually that would net Adidas, again, like a pretty legitimate profit. And again, they paid Zhao Havalanche under the table to make sure that when they got this contract for all the media media rights that he made sure to make sure that they didn't have any competition and that they weren't going to be challenged um and indeed uh international sports and leisure was not challenged for fifa's media rights although many within fifa would start to question isl because they they would be like why is this one particular company continuing on and on and on after all these years to still have television rights to the world cup and why is there never any competition and we eventually find out how this happens basically during his presidency joe havilange brings on this guy who described himself in that netflix series that i tell you about as being the the 13th man Um, and in football the 13th man is usually a guy who sits on the bench um, but Zhao Haviland realized pretty quickly that he, in order to carry out some of the programs that he wanted to with FIFA, he needed just, like, cold, hard cash, and he ne- wasn't necessarily the guy who wanted to be going out and knocking on doors and trying to sell FIFA to these bigger organizations. So he brings on this guy, a young guy named Sepp Blatter, who is going to become a pretty big character in this particular podcast. Sepp Blatter is almost single-handedly attributed with creating what you and I all know as sort of the modern sports sponsorship scenario. So before this, it was pretty uncommon, unless you were talking about something that was actually related to football directly, it was pretty uncommon for organizations to have sponsorships with companies that might not have anything to do with soccer so you know now obviously it's pretty pretty common if you're watching even if you're watching like hockey and stuff like that for companies like Gatorade or BioSteel to uh, pay for sponsorship and pay for ads on the sides of boards and they have they make deals with players back when all of this is going down um with FIFA though that's not really a thing and sep blatter sort of makes it his thing to approach these bigger companies and say hey yeah you should jump on board with us we're going to make a whole bunch of money with this world cup and if you provide us with a bunch of money to help us run fifa and help us run all these programs all these not just fifa uh, not just the world cup itself but also these uh, grassroots programs if you help us with all that will allow you to have ad space. Um, and one of the first organizations that Sepp Ladder approaches is Coca-Cola. And they start this idea of a youth world cup and youth development programs. And Coca-Cola is noted as saying like, okay, well, how many of, how many bottles of Coca-Cola are you going to sell? And Seth Platter goes, no, no, no! You don't understand. I'm not going to sell Coca-Cola. What I'm going to do is sell like the idea of Coca-Cola, so that you, in turn, will sell more. One of the ways that we find out, so so that's happening. FIFA's getting more money. FIFA's getting more um, support for what it what it needs, and one of the reasons that we find out that Havel is taking all these kickbacks is in fact Mr. Sepp Latter himself, which again, here's a spot of foreshadowing, is pretty ironic because uh, Sepp Ladder will later go on to be quite corrupt himself. But nonetheless, uh, he's at this time is the executive director of FIFA. And this is around, sorry, this is around 1989. He's the executive director of FIFA. And so he's looking at all the financial statements and one night, one time he realizes that there's a million dollar payment from International Sports and Leisure, which comes from them directly to Haviland. It doesn't, it's not supposed to be in FIFA's books, but it ends up in FIFA's books. Sepp Ladder goes, oh no, Haviland is taking kicks backs and that sort of starts the beginning of corruption in FIFA. And uh, it only gets stickier from there, my friends. Um, But unfortunately for you guys, we've almost reached the 40 minute mark of this podcast, which is crazy. I can't believe I've literally talked for 40 minutes. We are going to talk about Mr. Sepp Blatter and the people that he surrounds himself with And how this leads to yet more corruption in FIFA and more shady business and lots more good stuff. Um, But that, my friends, is for another podcast. Um, You've now officially reached the end of the first full episode of the Offside podcast. If you made it this far, thank you so much. Um, I'm so grateful that you're here and I'm so grateful that you were willing to listen to me talk about this crazy soccer organization from start to finish. I'm really excited about this particular series and I'm hoping that you enjoyed it too. So if you did, definitely make sure that you're subscribed and that you're reviewing us and doing all those things. Uh, It helps other people find us for sure. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and I will see you next time. The Offside Podcast is a production of Sound Shifter Productions, meaning it's written, produced, fact-checked, hosted, and researched by yours truly. If you think I did a good job and stayed onside, definitely let me know. If you think I went offside and could do a better job, you can let me know that too. But, you know, maybe try to be nice about it.
1: Please?
0: You can do that, though. Either in comments or uh, reviews. Or you can shoot me a line at offside.podcast12 at gmail.com. Thanks to Alex Action and Pixabay.com for the use of his tracks, Passion, as the intro and intro of this pod. See you next time, guys.